Recording. You got it started? Yep, we're going. Okay. Okay. Let's begin with a word of prayer. I see one more person coming in there. <laughs> okay. We're ready. We're ready now. So, Peter's here so we can start. <laughs> we'll begin with the word of prayer now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the plan that you set in motion all these many centuries ago. And that plan takes another giant leap forward in the seventh chapter of Second Samuel, where you have laid out so clearly the plan that you have to bring your Messiah into this world for our benefit and for all those who will turn to you. We ask that you would help us to appreciate this and to help us understand it more fully. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we continue in, in, with Samuel, book of Second Samuel. And I showed you this slide last time. In the Septuagint, uh, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were all considered one huge book, the Book of Kingdoms. And they divided up the, the subparts of that book according to the letters of the Greek alphabet: Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. And then in modern Hebrew Bibles, the the four books are divided into books of Shmuel or Samuel, Aleph and Beit. And then Malachim, the book of the kings, Aleph and Beit. The flight, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, and the travel tips. As with 1 Samuel, the author of 2 Samuel is unknown. Some have suggested that Samuel, Nathan, and Gad are responsible for recording information in the books. The landmarks, David went from shepherding livestock to serving as God's sovereign king in Israel. Following a Philistine invasion, Saul was killed, along with his sons, more than one son. Jonathan was killed, of course, and then two other sons were also killed. This opened the door for David, whom Samuel had anointed some 20 years before to rise to the throne. And of course, David patiently waited for God's timing. This book can be divided into David's triumphs, chapters 1 through 10, David's transgressions, chapters 11 and 12, and David's troubles as a result of those transgressions, chapters 13 through 24. The Gospel. God promises he will build David a house, a lineage or dynasty, which will last forever. David prefigures the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. As David wept over Saul, in spite of the way that Saul had treated him, he refused to scorn him. In the same way Jesus wept over Jerusalem, the city that would reject him and eventually kill him. The history during this period in Israel's history, around 1010 B.C. when Saul was killed, to around 970 B.C., late in 
and David's reign. This is the period of time we're dealing with. In this period of time, David conquered many of Israel's enemies, ultimately making Jerusalem his royal city and Zion the religious center of the nation. So there's some very important things happening in this book geographically. Uh, travel tips. The book shows how even the best people can fall into sin and how God is willing to forgive and help deal with the consequences. We should forgive because God forgives us. Make forgiveness, both offering it and receiving it, a priority in your life. In the same way that Saul's career was a, a steady ascent, there was a turning point. The turning point in Saul's life, of course, came when he took upon himself the duties of, of priest, which he was not authorized to do, and also when he neglected to utterly destroy the Amalekites, as he was to do. After that, his, his career began to decline. The same thing happens in, in David's life. He is gradually ascending, but then he comes to a turning point, and that would be the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. And even though God did not take the kingdom away from him and did not end his dynasty, still there were consequences for David's sins. The decline of David uh, continues on into the next book that we're going to be looking at, First Kings. It goes a couple chapters into there. David, does, his reign doesn't end at the end of Second Samuel. It continues on into First Kings until Solomon becomes king. There are many characters in Second Samuel, and it's easy to get them confused and mixed up, so I thought I would at least give you a list of some of the, of the main players, the main characters in the story. There is Abner. He's the commander of Saul's army. After the death of Saul, he backed Saul's son, Ishbosheth. But later he switched to David's side, and he was eventually murdered by Joab. Joab was the commander of David's army. Uh, he was David's nephew. His brothers are also in the story, Abishai and Asahel. Uh, Joab had a very strong personality, and he just was not going to stand any competition. So when Abner switched sides and, and came over to David's side, well, Joab had to get rid of him. Uh, the reason that he had to get rid of him was because uh, Abner had slain his brother, so his brother Asahel. So he was out to get Abner, and he did. Later on, when he kills another rival, uh, it says he didn't have to strike twice. I mean, he, he, was, a, he was a very proficient killer. Uh, another character in the story is Zadok. He's the priest under David, along with Abiathar. He was a descendant of, uh, descendant of Eliezer, Aaron's eldest son. Abiathar is the priest uh, in, the, in our last book, 1 Samuel, who helped David when, when David uh, needed some food for him and his men. 
and Abiathar was the priest who supplied him with the bread of the presence from the temple, from the tabernacle at that time, I guess I should say. I wanted to uh, show you some diagrams of David's wives and his children. Off to the left there, you see uh, David's ancestry. So he comes from the line of Ruth and Boaz, and then Obed and Jesse, and then, then here's where we see David. And uh, one of the things I wanted to point out here is that David had both a sister named Abigail, and he also had a wife named Abigail. So there's two Abigails here. Here's another diagram of, of David's ancestry and his wives and his children. Once again, we see Boaz and Ruth leading to Obed, to Jesse, to David. So Ruth was the uh, great-grandmother of David. And we'll hear more about Boaz and Ruth when we get to the book of Ruth. Now, some interesting things about David and his wives. So his eldest son was Amnon, and we'll read about him later on with regard to another son and daughter, Absalom, and Tamar, a brother and sister from the same mother. And of course, Amnon um, rapes Tamar, and that causes all kinds of problems, because Absalom later kills Amnon. But one thing I want to draw to your attention is, um, he was married to Michal, who was the daughter of Saul, and he's also married to Ahinoam, a woman named Ahinoam. Now, there's only one other woman in the Bible named Ahinoam. And she just happens to be the wife of Saul. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam. So the question is, is this the same Ahinoam that David is married to? who was married to Saul. Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us that, but there are strong implications that that was the case, that this Ahinoam was the same Ahinoam that was married to Saul because the prophet Nathan, when he spoke to David after the incident with Bathsheba, God, through Nathan, spoke to David and reminded him of all the things that God had done for David. And one of the things that he says is, well, the reason he was reminding David of all the things he had done for him, it was as if to say, look, I've done all of these things for you, and you do this? 
But one of the things that, that God says through the prophet Nathan is, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. So God had given David even Saul's wives. And it was a common thing in the ancient world. Whenever one ruler finished his reign and another ruler took over, who was not of that dynasty, was of a different dynasty, he would often take the wives or the concubines of, of his successor, of his predecessor. Um, there are some other instances in, in 2 Samuel where we, where we see this same thing. Uh, later on, when Absalom takes over and drives David out of Jerusalem, one of the things that Ahithophel calls him to do is to take those ten concubines of David's and to let everybody know, let everybody know about it. So it was quite a common thing in the ancient world. One of the most important chapters in the whole Bible is 2 Samuel 7, important in terms of salvation history. It lays out the plan that God set in motion to bring the Messiah into the world. What? 2 Samuel 7? Hmm. I wonder, wonder what, why is doing that? Um, I've never seen that before. There must be some way to bring that down. I don't know. I suppose the uh, projector is somehow pointed too high. Yeah. yeah. Somehow it got moved. I'll have to pay attention to that. Okay, so these, these next few passages will be in 2 Samuel 7, and i give you the verses down below. So, the, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within, a, a tent, within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan gave him the green light. Go for it. It sounds good to me. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. The Lord also declares to you, that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So the passage is referring to Solomon, but it doesn't end there. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So obviously he's talking about something that's far beyond Solomon. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the stroke of the sons of men. 
But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from, you, from before you. So yes, it is talking about Solomon and his physical descendants. But there, once again, there's something beyond that. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now there's a lot of use of the word house in here, in this passage. And actually it's used 15 times in this passage. It's used once by the narrator, six times by God, and eight times by David. And the word house is used in several different ways here. It sometimes refers to a royal palace, the palace of, of the king. It sometimes refers to a temple. You know, that God is, is promising David that his son will build a house for him, a temple. Sometimes it refers to a royal dynasty. That's the majority of the uses. The royal dynasty that, that God will build for David. And sometimes it simply refers to a family, David's family. There are some lessons that we can learn from 2 Samuel 7. We have to accept the possibility that God may say no to some of our loftiest, noblest dreams and aspirations. When God says no, it is not necessarily rejection, but redirection. When God says no, it does not necessarily mean we are sinful. It may only indicate that the best of us are fallible. Infallibility must not be confused with sinfulness. Nathan wasn't sinning when he told David to go ahead with his project. He just needed to be redirected by God. Paul knew that. This thing about no, God saying no. Among the clearest times of evidence that the Spirit was directing him was when the Spirit said no having forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. God said no to Bithynia and opened the door to Troas, which opened the door to the spread of the gospel into Europe. So God wasn't rejecting Paul, he was just redirecting him. God's plans for us are infinitely greater than any plans we have for God. David is interested in a project, building a house. God is interested in building people, building a household. Regarding this principle of, of receiving, God, God's plans for us are infinitely greater than any plans we have for God. And David is interested in a project, building a house. God is interested in people, building a household. David is interested in achieving. 
God wants to teach him something about receiving. For many, it is difficult to receive. It is much easier to wash feet than to have one's feet washed. Remember Peter at the, at the Last Supper. Now, I never thought I would see the day when I would be quoting from Mr. Rogers. But this is actually a pretty good quotation. It's so very hard receiving. When you give something, you're in much greater control. But when you receive something, you're so vulnerable. Vulnerable. I think the greatest gift you can give people is an honest receiving of what they have to offer. Now, David's bureaucracy. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, it tells us of the formation of the bureaucracy with which David will surround himself. It tells us about his military personnel. It tells us about his administrative personnel. And it tells us about his priestly personnel. There's a reason why I'm telling you this. Remember that all important scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture. So don't neglect, don't overlook those boring parts of Scripture. Passages where you might say, well, this really isn't interesting. It doesn't really seem important. I think I'll just skip over this. Don't. There are valuable things that you can learn from even these passages that seem boring, seem Unimportant. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, how I found this passage really important, really valuable. Along with listing all of the officials that David had, it says that David's sons were, well, what were they? Various translations are all over the board on this. Uh, the King James Version says, and David's sons were chief rulers. The NASB says, David's sons were chief ministers. First Samuel 8, 18. Yes, yeah, 2 Samuel, I'm sorry. The, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, and David's sons were chief officials, chief rulers, chief ministers, chief officials. But the ESV says something completely different. And David's sons were priests. How could that be? Weren't priests supposed to be from the tribe of Levi? David and David's sons would be from the tribe of Judah. But the ESV has it right here. I think the reason that other translations have such a hard time translating this is because they're just really not sure what to do with it. But the Hebrew word is kohanim, 
priests. Some of David's sons were priests. And this might help to explain something that I've been perplexed about for a long time. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, we are told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, are cousins. For a long time, I wondered how that could be. Because we are also told in Luke that Elizabeth was the wife of Zechariah, a priest. So how could that be? How could Mary and Elizabeth be cousins? Because priests, being from the tribe of Levi, were also supposed to marry women from the tribe of Levi. So how could Mary and Elizabeth be cousins if Elizabeth was of the tribe of Levi married to a priest? Well, it, it may be that this statement about some of David's sons were priests may help to explain this. It may be that they became priests in the same way that Samuel became a priest. Samuel was not of the tribe of Levi, but when he took a, a Nazarite vow and devoted himself to the Lord, he took on the duties of the priest and was considered in Levi. And so Mary and Elizabeth may have been descended from one of these sons that was a priest, even though he was of the tribe of Judah. So that would explain how Mary and Elizabeth could be cousins. And some people think that John the Baptist himself was under a Nazarite vow. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And that was one of the requirements given in Numbers for the person who's under a Nazarite vow, was that he drink no wine or strong drink. He was to completely stay away from all grape products. So now we get to a very sad part of Israel's history and of David's history. In 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that was his general, the commander of his forces, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The city of Rabbah is today the city of Jordan, the city of Amman, the capital of Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan River. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Many times before this, we read that David inquired of the Lord. This would have been a very good time for David to inquire of the Lord rather than to inquire about this woman. 
And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So this sets in motion a whole chain of horrible events. David tries to get Uriah to go home to his wife and have sex with her so he can claim that the child is theirs rather than his. He brings Uriah back from battle and he tries to send him home, but that doesn't work. So then David tries to get Uriah drunk, and he's successful at that, but he's not able to send him home to his wife. So then he embarks upon the horrible plan to have his general, Joab, put Uriah in the forefront of the battle where he is killed. And... It's always helpful to to look at plays on words in the Hebrew and the Greek. There are three washings that happen in relation to this incident. First, David saw a woman bathing or washing. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. It may be that that wash your feet is a euphemism for go have sex with your wife. And then David says in his prayer of penitence, Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Psalm 51 tells us all about David's repentance after this incident. So God needs to wash the one who observed a washing and tried to encourage another washing. So those are the three washings of 2 Samuel 7. Some people complain about the experience of David and they say, well, David got off scot-free. God just forgave him and he, and he didn't, it didn't cost him anything. Well, that's not really the case. When Nathan told David the story that was to illustrate what had happened and how God looked at this, about the wealthy man taking the lamb from the poor man to feed his company, David was angry. And David said, that uh, the, the wealthy man should restore fourfold for taking this man's lamb. And this is what the law said. If you steal, steal someone's sheep, you, you not only have to pay them back, but you have to pay them back fourfold, four times as many. And this is what happened to David. David loses in tragic events four of his sons to death. Bathsheba's first child dies. Amnon dies, the the one who the eldest son who 
raped Tamar, was killed by her brother, Absalom. And then Absalom was killed when he revolted against David. And finally, not in 2 Samuel, but in 1 Kings, we'll learn about Adonijah, another son, who tries to take over the throne instead of Solomon. That son is also killed. So sin has consequences. Even when we are forgiven, sin has consequences in this world. Now, 2 Samuel 15. This is the story about Absalom. After Absalom killed his brother, his half-brother Amnon, he fled, and he was away from Jerusalem for a while, and finally he came back. He was allowed to come back. And even though David did allow him to come back, the relations between David and Absalom were not, were not good after that. And we read in 2 Samuel 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. That's not a good sign. When you start amassing the weapons of war and you start amassing men to be your cheerleaders, that's not a good sign. Not for the reigning king. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. But, but Absalom began to turn people to his side, to his cause. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. One of the, so one of the things that Absalom did was to get Ahithophel on his side. Ahithophel was David's counselor. He was very respected. His advice, his counsel was just considered impeccable, just just wonderful. Nobody was considered as wise as Ahithophel. So Absalom made a point of getting him over to his side. Now, I'm always interested in parallels, things that are like other things in the Bible. So here's some parallels, some striking parallels, between the experiences of David and Jesus and between Ahithophel and Judas. David crosses the Kidron. So when Absalom made his move, when he, when he attempted to take over the kingdom, David was forced to flee from Jerusalem. He crossed the Kidron in his flight. Jesus crosses the Kidron. 
in that night that he was betrayed. He went from the upper room over to the Mount of Olives. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. David goes to the Mount of Olives. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is located on that Mount of Olives. Ahithophel betrays David. Judas betrays Jesus. So, once again, a person who was close to them, a person that they relied upon, betrayed them. And then, when things didn't work out as planned, Ahithophel commits suicide by hanging. And that's what Judas does as well. He commits suicide by hanging. So that's very interesting. Now, when we look at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel together, there's an interesting pattern here. Near the beginning of 1 Samuel, there's, there's a poem. There's Hannah's prayer, Thanksgiving. And near the end of 2 Samuel, there's a poem. David's poem, David's hymn. And both of these poems, what they have in common is that they're both uh, hymns of thanksgiving to God, thanking God for the great things that he has done. So in the first one, a new mother responds in thanksgiving and exalts God. In the last one, by David, a triumphant king gives thanks for his victories. But First Samuel doesn't begin with the poem. There's a little bit of narration before the poem. And with the latter poem in Second Samuel, that's not the end of the story. There's, there's a little bit more narration after the poem. So in First Samuel, a barren woman blessed and exalted. That's what we have in, in the beginning of First Samuel. In Second Samuel, David gives thanks to God for all of the wonderful things that God has done. But then once again, he slips up. He does something that he's not supposed to do. So a self-exalting king is judged and abased because of what he has done. One of the things that people complain about, one of the portions of this, of this hymn, of David's hymn, that has provoked the most controversy is David's claims about himself in this hymn. He says, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. He says, I have kept the ways of the Lord. He says, I was blameless before him. So, the question that comes up, well, does that sound like the man who committed adultery with Bathsheba? Uh, the man who murdered Uriah? The man who took a census of Israel when that's what God had not instructed him to do. Now, David is not saying that he is, he's not claiming that he's sinlessly perfect, but there's a very important thing that you need to consider about this hymn. 
This hymn of David's is Psalm 18. It's almost exactly the same, Psalm 18, as this, what is recorded in 2 Samuel. And here's what you need to know about Psalm 18. In the superscript above Psalm 18, explaining what it's about, where it comes from, it says this. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So, even though this hymn appears at, towards the end of, of Second Samuel, it was composed long before that. It was composed long before David was king in Jerusalem, long even before he was anointed king at Hebron. It's back in the days of, of David's youth when he was running from Saul. That is the, the context in which this hymn, this hymn of praise was written. So it's very important to, to look at that context. It was, it was written long before the incident with, with Bathsheba and Uriah and the census. Now let's take a look at the geography of Second Samuel. There's some very important geographical matters that are taking place in this book. It's in this book that David moves his capital to Jerusalem. And just think of, of all of the things that have happened historically since that time in the last 3,000 or so years regarding Jerusalem. All of the important events that have happened in Jerusalem. Not the least of which is the crucifixion and resurrection of our Savior. So this is a map of the setting of Second Samuel. When David first became king, his kingdom was just this, this small part right here. But by the time that his reign was ended, he had extended his kingdom far to the north up into what is today Syria and into the south, into the Negev. And he finally brought the Philistines over here along the coast to heal. When David first began his rise to power after Saul's death, he, did, he was not unchallenged, let's put it that way. So even though Saul and Jonathan and two other sons had been killed on Mount Gilboa, there was another son of Saul named Ishbosheth. And at first David was just the king of Judah and his capital was in Hebron. 
But when, G- when David was going to become king of all Israel, he had some opposition from Ishbosheth. So this area down here in Judah, that was David's. The Philistines are along the coast here. But all of this territory here was claimed by Ishbosheth. And there were many people in Israel who were still loyal to Saul after his death. So here's another map of contrasting the area that was controlled by David and the area of Ishbosheth. The general of Saul's army, Abner, after Saul's death, he became the, the general of Ishbosheth's army. Now later on, Abner switched sides. He decided to go over to David. The reason he did that was because there was a falling out between Ishbosheth and his general, Abner. I mentioned to you before that oftentimes when one ruler died and another ruler rose to power not of the same dynasty, it was common for him to take the wives or the concubines of the former king. And Ishbosheth uh, accused Abner. We don't know whether Abner actually did this or not, but he accused him of going into Rizpah, one of the one of the concubines of Saul. And so that led to a falling out between Ishbosheth and Abner. And Abner decided to switch sides and to go over to David. Now there's an incident that happened here at Gibeon. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Not only uh, did David have to contend with internal enemies, he also, ha- of course, had to contend with, with external enemies. The, the Philistines continued to be a problem. They were a problem in the time of the judges, and they continued to be a problem on into the time of David. And David was finally able to get them under control. But there was, there was a major battle here not too far from Jerusalem, here in the Valley of Rephaim. That's where David routed the Philistines. Here's another map that shows this area here where David defeated the Philistines. But I also want to show you something about Gibeon, right up here. Gibeon was important in the battle between David and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And there was a a tragic event that happened here, right here at Gibeon. And I'll show you some pictures of, of Gibeon. It happened at the Pool of Gibeon. And here's a, a modern day picture of what many to believe, believe to be the location of the Pool of Gibeon. It's dug right into the limestone, right into the rock, down to the water table. At least it was the water table at that time. Um, 
it's about 40 feet in diameter and about 35 feet deep. And here's a, a picture looking down into that. You can see that there are steps that have been carved into the rock so that people can go down to the water level and, and draw water. But there was a, a significant event that happened at the Pool of Gibeon. So the forces that were loyal to David and the forces that were loyal to Ishbasha, the son of Saul, came together at Gibeon. And Abner, who was Ishbosheth's general, said to Joab, who was David's general, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number. Twelve for Benjamin, that's the tribe that Saul's from, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the beard, by the head, and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. So this was a contest that nobody won. All 12 men from David's side and all 12 men from Ishbosheth's side, they killed each other. Nobody won. But after that happened, a, a furious battle ensued. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So that's what happened at Gibeon. Now the most important thing geographically that happens in 2 Samuel is of course that David moved his capital once he became king of all Israel. He moved his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem, to Jebus. the Jebusite city. Now, the city of David, Jerusalem, was not, was not very large at that time. It's just a, a narrow little peninsula of land, you might say, on, on this ridge, at the southern end of this ridge. It's only about 12 acres in size, so it's not very big at all. But it was very defensible because... On the east side, there's a steep valley, the Kidron Valley. And there's a, there's a central valley here, but today that central valley has been so filled in that you hardly notice it's a valley. And then there's another valley over further west that comes down south, the Hinnom Valley. So these two valleys, the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley, come together, which makes Jerusalem very, very defensible. And also there's this Gihon Spring. It's always important uh, in times of siege to have a supply of water. There's another picture of the city of David, as it was at that time. So once again, here's, here's the city of David and the threshing floor of Arana, where the a temple was later built by Solomon. Solomon ex- expanded the city to the north to the to encompass that threshing floor of, of Arana and build the temple. 
So over the centuries, Jerusalem expanded to the north and also to the west. It never expanded to the east because there's this steep Kidron Valley in here between Jerusalem and the, the Mount of Olives. So Jerusalem uh, expanded to the north and to the west. Now here's a map that overlays the walls of the old city as they are today. Over uh, Jerusalem. Now you can see that this area that was the original city of Jerusalem is totally outside of the of the walls as they are today. The uh, the, the walls of the old city, as it is called, really aren't that old. They're, they're from the time of a Muslim ruler, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. He built the, those walls uh, sometime in the, in the 15th century AD. So we refer to this as the old city, but it's not really all that old. But as you can see, David uh, Solomon extended the city to the north here, and he built a, a palace up here and a temple. So this is Solomon's expansion up to Mount Moriah. These are some more some more maps showing you how David's kingdom expanded over over in the years of his reign. So once again, when when he first became king, he was just in this area here of Judah, he expanded here. But over his reign, he, he finally brought the Philistines down on the coast under control, expanded to the south, into the Negev, and he expanded in the north as well. He expanded very far into the north, clear up here into what is today uh, Syria. You will notice that even Damascus the capital of Syria became under David's control. So David, his, his, his uh, kingdom when he first became king was just this small area here, but eventually he expanded it to go clear up here. Here's another colored picture uh, sort of a three-dimensional map showing you the extent of David's kingdom all the way down from, all the way down into the Negev, clear down to Elat, and over here to the river Egypt, the Wadi El Arish, and on up into Syria. Once again, this gives you an idea of, of the extent of his kingdom to begin with, and then later on it, it extended far beyond. We see these two uh, stars here where, where he defeated the Philistines at the Valley of Rephaim, and also this horrible incident that took place at Gibeon. It sometimes seems like Israel spent as much time killing each other as they did killing their enemies.
There once again is, is the vast extent of, of David's kingdom, the kingdom which he bequeathed to Solomon. Now, at the time that this terrible incident with Bathsheba occurred, Israel was fighting against the Ammonites. And they were over here in Rabah, which is today the capital of Amman, Jordan. And the Syrians were allied with the Ammonites. And when David defeated them, that's when he acquired all of his territory up into Syria. There's another map of the Syrians and the Ammonites coming together to fight Israel. And of course, they, the Ammonites came out in the short end. But in the meantime, David got himself into some serious trouble. So then I want to show you a little bit about Absalom. Remember, Absalom revolted against David. So when Absalom first killed his brother Amnon, he fled all the way up here to Geshur. He stayed there for quite some time, but eventually David allowed him to come back to Jerusalem. And then he claimed that he was going from Jerusalem down to Hebron to fulfill a vow, but we don't know whether he really made that vow or not, or if it was just an excuse. But that's when he proclaimed himself king and he came up to Jerusalem, and David decided that at the moment the best course was to flee. So he fled from Jerusalem, and he went clear over here to Mahanaim, on the east side of the Jordan. And that's kind of ironic, because Absalom, the, the enemy of David, he's taking Hebron and Jerusalem, David's capitals, and, and David is fleeing up to an area that was controlled by Ishbosheth, his, his enemy. So once again, here's, here's David's track fleeing across the Jordan up to Mahanaim. And this, this map shows rebellions, and notice that I, well, well, you can't see out there at the top is I say rebellions, plural, because the rebellion of, of Absalom wasn't the last rebellion. So here, here we have David fleeing. Uh, this here is where, where uh, Absalom had originally fled after he killed Amnon. But after the defeat of Absalom's forces, then another man named Sheba also rebelled against David. And, and David had to defeat him. Fortunately, that rebellion was rather short-lived. Now, another sad event in Israel's history and David's history was the census that David was not supposed to take. 
it wasn't necessarily wrong to take a census, but the purpose of this census was really to exalt in Israel's military strength rather than to trust in God. It's interesting that this census that David took took more than nine months to complete, uh, whereas the census that Moses took only took 20 days. <laughs> but, but of course, Moses had the advantage in that Israel was all gathered into one location. But this map here shows how the people who are taking the census traveled all around Israel to collect the data before they returned to Israel. Now, I want to spend a few minutes talking about things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> what it says up there at the top is Second Samuel versus First Chronicles. The story of David is given to us in First and Second Samuel, but then it's also given to us in First Chronicles. Much material in the Samuel account is absent from the Chronicles account. For the most part, the portions that, are, that Chronicles deletes deal with incidents in David's life that are disturbing or questionable or immoral or inimical toward David. Much material in the Chronicles account is absent from the Samuel account. The additions in Chronicles focus on David's role in organizing religious, political, and civic matters that relate to worshiping God and running the empire he, that he's about to bequeath to Solomon. Chronicles is speaking to a different audience than First and Second Samuel. It's speaking to a post-exilic restored community a community that has gone through the 70 years of, of captivity and exile. But it's given to a community that is part of an eternal covenant made by God with David. It is a covenant in which God is both to be worshipped and praised and also obeyed. In this covenant, God is the model covenant maker and David is the model king as we follow his rise, his reign, and his preparation for Solomon's succession. But don't think that Chronicles whitewashes David and makes a sinner into a saint. Chronicles does include David's second great sin, the taking of the census. One of the, the, the thing that really makes you go, Hmm. as you compare these two accounts, 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, is this. In 2 Samuel 24.1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, the Lord, incited David against them. 
go number Israel and Judah. But in the first Chronicles account, first Chronicles 21.1, it says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So what's going on here? Which is it? Did the Lord incite David or did Satan incite David? The earlier of these two accounts, the second Samuel one, explains David's actions in terms of a primary cause, God's anger. Now it says that God was angry with Israel, not, not with David, but with Israel. And it doesn't tell us why God was angry with Israel. It just tells us that he was. But anyway, David's actions of, of numbering Israel, of taking the census, are, are explained in terms of a primary cause, God's anger. Well, the latter of these two accounts, the Chronicles one, explains David's actions in terms of a secondary cause. Satan. So really it's a, it's a good study. It helps us to understand the, the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God controls his universe. Nothing can happen unless God permits it to happen. So even though God allowed Satan to incite David, he is ultimately in charge. He's in control. So in that sense, you can say that he's the primary cause. Well, he works through Satan. And you can see that often in, in, in uh, the book of, book of Kings, for example. How, David, how God is able to use lying prophets to do what he ultimately wants them to do. And that's... It's humorous if you look at it because so, so many times people think that they are defying God when their defiance of God is actually working into his plan. We see, we see that very clearly with the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm sure that when, when Jesus died, Satan said, there, I finally got rid of him. Well, little did he know that he and the people that he inspired were just working out God's plan. And that is the case here also. God, God has a, a plan, has a purpose that he's working out. And even when wicked people or wicked beings think that they are defying God, they are actually just playing into his hands. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that in spite of the constant feelings of man, even those who seek to obey you and serve you, we have failed. We have come short. We are fallible, sinful human beings. And we are so thankful that you have provided a way, that you have provided a dynasty that will go on forever in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. We give you praise for this. In his name, amen.